I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. If you could only see the way she loves me, then maybe you would understand why I feel this way about our love and what I must do. If you could only see how blue her eyes can be when she says When she says she loves me Well you got your reason and you've got your lies And you've got your manipulations They cut you down to size is the music of Tonic, which features my guest today on the program, Emerson Hart. Let me tell you a little bit about Emerson Hart. So I thought we'd start the podcast off this time around with a little math. Not my strong suit, but for the purpose of today's interview, these are numbers to keep in mind. And I'll bet they're numbers you've never thought about. For example, a hummingbird gets 3 million heartbeats in its brief life. It takes 730 days for a pineapple to grow. Honeybees flap their wings 200 times per second. A dog's sense of smell is 100,000 times stronger than a human being's. And octopuses have three hearts. So, if an octopus's girlfriend breaks up with him, he can say, Well, you've broken my heart, but at least I have two others. Or he might say, You've broken my heart so badly, none of them work anymore. He might say that too. But on a more serious note, did you ever stop to think about how many days a person gets to live over the course of our time on this earth? And what about this? What number of days do you think constitutes a full life? Well, to be fair, I suppose that last number is open to interpretation because some people ignite early and depart early. But for singer-songwriter Emerson Hart, his interpretation of that amount is very clear. And for him, the number of days that constitutes a full life is 32,000. A novelistic musical homage to his 93-year-old stepfather Arthur, who at 16 lied about his age to get into the Merchant Marines, and later found himself fighting in World War II, Hart began thinking about Arthur's early adventures and his later influence on Hart himself, urging him as a teenager to go to the record store, buy music, and soak it all up. That said, Arthur's life, a life lived, like really lived, was the creative spark for Hart's new album. Meanwhile, Emerson Hart has been on this earth for a little over 18,000 days. 
And during his time on this planet, he's had a number of adventures of his own. The Pennsylvania-born, New Jersey-raised musician founded Tonic in Los Angeles with his pal Jeff Russo in 1993. Over the course of their five-album run, the two-time Grammy-nominated band have logged six top ten singles, sold close to five million albums, and played packed houses all over the world. Hart co-wrote the theme song for American Dreams, which earned him an ASCAP award for Best Theme Song of Television back in 2003, and he's put out three solo albums, 2007's Cigarettes and Gasoline, 2014's Beauty and Disrepair, and his brand new one, 32,000 Days. From numbers like the catchy opener Lucky One, to the poignant old friend, to the life-affirming title track, not only is 32,000 Days a reminder that life is meant to be lived, it also reminds us that Emerson Hart is one of the greatest living American musicians. This is a marvelous album, and Emerson Hart is a hell of a guy. So enjoy our conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. watching him grow older and he's you know 93 um i think that's when it started to strike me i was like wow like how much history have we had together you know since i was 15 years old um you know then you have a child and you know your life changes and you watch your child grow up and and i think it just started to spark a, a record about a journey and about the stories that go along with those journeys, not necessarily specific to him, not necessarily specific to me um, in in a literal sense, um, but some of them are. And yeah, I, I think it's it's a very wonderful, terrifying and 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 challenging thing <laughs> growing <Yeah>. older. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. It makes me think lately, it's like I feel now like there's so much I want to do and I feel like I got to cram it all in. I never used to think like that. No, I know. I, I work with a lot of young writers, uh, songwriters, and um, it's so funny to me to watch time wasted, but it's not like they don't work hard. They all work very hard and they love their craft, but they just have zero concept about what's coming like that strange push that happens where you're like, man, I got to keep creating. I got to create more. <laughs> I think it's all tied to libido. I think we're so single-minded when we're that age. We're just kind of thinking about, you know, about about finding romance or whatever it might be. At least I was, that, I, that nothing else can almost get in. You're so single-minded. Mm-hmm. It's true. I... I was talking about this last night with a friend of mine. I was like, think about when I think about all the love songs that I've written in my career or in my life, you know, most of which people never heard, but some of which obviously did. And it was very successful for me, but um, I still think about love, but man, I look at it in a totally different way. It's so much more encompassing now. And I think that's even better because not only is it about music, it's about words. You know, we we are so much of us is, is, I agree with you, the libido and the drive of our 
of our early 20s, um, then we start to realize, oh, wait, but love can mean this, too, and love can mean that, too. Right. And both are just as important. And I, I think what it is also is that when we're in our 20s, and I'll even include my 30s there, I think I was thinking about love in a very selfish way, where it was like gratifying, mm-hmm. you know, like sort of a wine to sort of possess it. And I think as you get older, mm-hmm. it's all about sharing it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think I I probably got hip to that probably in my early 30s as well. I just started realizing, oh, wait, there's more to my life than career and making money. And there has to be a push and there has to be a pull. There has to be a balance. You know, there'll be phases in anybody's relationship um, where it's just out of balance. And that's just reality. That's who we are, I think, as humans. We we tend to forget, you know, certain things and, w- and what is important, our priorities. But the beauty of getting older, those phases are pretty short because you're like, oh, man, I probably shouldn't do that because that might hurt their feelings or, you know what I'm saying? Right. I, I think that's great. I think I think all of us should <laughs> wait to get married until we're 40, yeah. especially men. Because we just, I think we, some of us are lucky to figure it out early, but some of us are just not. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I I think I would, I would, not that I would have been a terrible partner in the 30s, but I think I'm a much better version of myself now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I, I, I mean, I think that should always be the goal. Just try to be a partner, you know, do the dishes, help out. You know, right. I know it sounds it sounds so stupid, but it's like I think that that's one of my love languages. Is I love doing for others. I love doing I love doing the dishes. I love folding the laundry. I love helping. You know, and finding the right partner for that is is uh, very gratifying. Yeah, and basically, do the dishes is basically a metaphor for just you know pitch in and and yeah. pull your pull your weight. Yeah, I mean, even my daughter, she's twelve. Like when she finishes eating, she carries your plate and puts it in the sink. That to me is that's such a sign of respect. It's like you know you're not my maid. I'm gonna I'm gonna help out. Now you know, granted, sometimes it looks like a bomb went off in her room, and that's okay. <laughs> but we clean it up together, you know. Right, right, yeah. That that awareness that you're talking about about getting older is actually I know it sounds corny, but it's actually been a great gift is to have that kind of insight and that vision now. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt, without right. a doubt. Um, there's a song on 32,000 Days called Disposable. Um, I go through the whole lyric and I, each line starts with a letter that spells the word disposable. And one of the lines in the song is, do we have to spell it out? We never see it till it's too late to change. It's like, it can be very simple, but we, we complicate it so, so quickly. You know, complicate it so quickly. And I, I'm not sure why we do that. But I think, like you said, starting off in this conversation is getting to the bottom of being happy where you are at your age. That's that's a miracle and a gift in itself. Yeah, and I think that we do tend to get into our own way quite a bit. We're our own worst enemies. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And it, another thing to be said on that point is just, you know, the one thing that I've always tried to do, and this was something that my manager told me years ago, 
uh, in my career, as he said, don't don't ever become a victim of nothing left to prove. Like you always you always have to say something. You always will have to and want to say something. Um, and sometimes people won't like what you have to say, and that's just the truth of the matter. <clears throat> but it still needs to be said. And I think in my generation of musicians, um, most of them are still creating and still doing, you know, the ones who are still with us, obviously. Um, but it, it, it's just such a gift, man. It is such a gift to be able to do that. I was, I did a charity show not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago in Georgia with, it was me and Scott Stapp and, and uh, Matt from Vertical Horizon. And we were just talking about our journeys and what we had gone through and, you know, the pitfalls and the, the scars and all that goes along with it. But at the end of the day, we never became victims of nothing left to prove because we, we all, we all still want to share. And even if that means that you're sharing it with younger writers, even if that means that you're helping steer the way, even if that means you're making records that, you know, maybe somebody that doesn't like, it doesn't matter. You have to keep creating and keep growing and keep changing because if you don't, then you just become some miserable human being who doesn't contribute to art, you know, and nobody wants to be that. Man, that was a big statement. I'm sorry about that. No, no, it's a <laughs> great it was, statement. It, it was a really good conversation we had had. And it's it has always stuck with me in my career and, and probably once or twice a year I like to I like to drop it out of my mouth like a like a marble. That's a great manager, by the way, to give you those words. That is a valuable piece of, of advice. Yeah, and it and it goes to all points of life, even if you don't create art for a living. Even if you work a job that you've been in for 30 years and you're like, man, I don't want to do this anymore, or you're just on autopilot, or if you're a parent and you're on autopilot, don't – just don't do that. It's just, it's just a bad, bad move. You know, I think we always have to keep changing and, and growing. D is the distance, I the insult, S for the sorry that we never said. The promise we never could keep all oh, the hours it won't be as the silence between you and me I just wasn't able I just wasn't able oh, Do we have to spell it out we never see it till it's too late to change and Yeah Okay, why do we miss what we just throw away? D is destroyed, I is the injury, S is the sadness I just can't repair. P is it possible? Oh, is you only? S is a second guess I won't make again I just wasn't able I just wasn't able oh, Do we have to spell it out? We never see it till it's too late to change
positions i'm a writer and i and i'm a professor and i teach i teach young writers in the same way that you're working with young writers and mm-hmm. there is a remarkable moment where a young writer will write a line that i could never write like it's so good and mm-hmm. it just ignites me creatively um do you feel do you draw inspiration and new energy from young writers that are just crushing it yeah absolutely Absolutely. When I see the way, it's kind of like an untarnished view of a world that we've already lived. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you can you can read a line and go, wow, I would have never said it that way, and I would have never looked at it that way. And it can be extremely uh, motivational and inspirational. I mean, you don't take the line, but you know, you you look at what it means to that person. And that that's that's magic, man. I mean, but really, what we do is magic. I mean, writing is magic. You know, it, it it's taking something that doesn't exist, other than the experiences we've had and things we have read, and putting them into into song or into word. I mean, that that's crazy. I had this experience a couple of years ago where we were playing in a foreign country, and I get up there, and it was you know, a big crowd and it was fun. And and I started singing, if you could only see, and I see this, you know, 18 year old girl in the front row, you know, standing next to her mom, obviously, but she's singing a thought back to me that I had, had in my head in 1994 and wrote down on a piece of paper and then released on a record in 1996. But it was a thought. I mean, that's magic, man. It's like, it's in her head. It's part of her dialogue. That that's just crazy to me. That's also a really cool way to look at it. Um, you know, I haven't heard anyone say it that way. I I love that sentiment. Yeah, it's just um, it's just magical. It really is. Even you know the good songs, the bad songs. You know, you know, as a writer, you have to you have to flush it out. I mean, I'm in a book of poetry right now, and along with you know tonic stuff and and you know stuff from my solo work but it's such an interesting exercise to not put music behind something and just train of thought pages of words just straight through and it's god i just love it so much i just love it it's just it 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 helps me wake up every morning and I and I feel like that's the most creative time as well. Like I, I think I've done, I do the work that I'm the most proud of, whether or not it's my best work, um, by my peers. But um, it happens from seven in the morning till one. It is all the best stuff when your brain is still fresh. You know. Was it always that way for you, or were you more of a nighttime writer? <clears throat> always been a morning writer. 
Always. Yeah. Always. Yeah. I've, I've always been a, and I don't, nothing good happens after nine o'clock at night for me. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> except being on stage, that's fun. But as far as creatively, I don't, uh, I've never been a, a, uh, a nighttime writer. I feel that your brain when it awakes still holds little tiny pockets of uninhibited lifetime beat down beauty. You know, it just, it, it can just release it before you start to get into the minutia of your day. Yeah. It feels almost like it's un, unfiltered and unencumbered by, by noise. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, look, I think that's why some of our greatest American, you know, writers and poets, um, have always had a solid amount of, of of solitude in their life, and of course, you know Thoreau and uh, Frost was a was a notorious quiet writer, um, and he was like my my hero when I was a child. I used to my grandparents had this old Victorian mansion in Ohio. Uh, my father died when I was very young; I was ten, and I lived with them for two years. And my grandfather had this enormous library. It was I guess the room was probably about 40 by 40. And it was just books and books and books. And I would get up in the morning and go downstairs and <clears throat> put on my A-track. And then I would sit and, and, and read, you know, and read poetry. And when I, I think when I discovered Frost, I, 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 there's no way that I'd be the songwriter I am today if it wasn't for his cadence and his ability to connect so quickly. I, I, he, you can connect with anything you can you can connect with birches you can connect with you know roadless travel all, all all of that work um you connect in the first five lines he can he immediately puts you in the story you know i love that he reminds me of edward hopper in the sense that you know hopper's paintings are so quiet um even when there's people in them and Frost's poems even when they're about neighbors they're still really quiet they're quiet quiet words yeah, they're very, very. I guess you could say gentle. Yeah, you know that when you think about Hopper's work, it's, it is gentle. It's it's vibrant, but yet muted. And um, but yeah, what was the what's the one that Hopper painted? Is it Christina's World, where the girl is in the front? There's an old Victorian house in the background, and she's obviously uh, paralyzed, and she's sitting in the in the wheat field. And she's looking up at this house, or maybe that's a Wyeth painting I'm thinking of. It might be an Andrew Wyeth. Um, but regardless, when you look at it, it's, it immediately moves you, you know. And I'm, I think there was a, when, when making this record, 32,000 days, I think that there was, that was definitely my intention because I was so deep in writing <clears throat> poetry at that point and, and trying to finish up, you know, different, different works that I've been uh, working on, but I wanted the record to be, to have a thread, to have a story, and also just to be gentle. I didn't put a lot of heavy guitars on it. I didn't, I just kept it very rooted in what the song asked for, and every song just asked to be, to be simple, you know. It's very clear that when I was listening to it, I, it made me think about Paul Simon. It made me think about the silence between his words as well. Um, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a real finesse to this record. Yeah, Mr. Uh, Mr. Simon definitely mastered that. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> he he right. is. Uh, I remember the first time I listened to Graceland, and that record when I was a kid was just. I just it blew my mind. I mean, yes, I heard Simon and Garfunkel growing up. My parent, you know, my mom and my stepdad, and I heard those records, and they're magical. I mean, there's no more magical of a song than in America. I mean, it's it's an amazing song, but um, I love the cadence of that. It's funny we talk about Paul Simon because I, I'm realizing now that there's a lot of modeling for this record that came from his his intentions and his um, his how he would thread things together on a record. It's funny how you mentioned America because I was just going to name check that song as one of those you know, the subject matter on this record reminded me of the song America specifically. Um, mm-hmm. And every time I hear America, I literally have to stop and just listen, no matter where, I don't care if I'm out in the middle of the world, I just have to stop because it's so, it's so arrestingly quiet. Um, and I and I find that this record evokes the same feelings, um, that kind of storytelling, that kind of um, precision it's really remarkable mm-hmm. work. Thank you. I'm really proud of it. I really am. Um, man, that's such a line, though. That first line, let us be lovers and marry our fortunes together. I mean, oh, we talk about dragging somebody right into a story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're I'll, I'll, put on my, I'll put on my Paul Simon Appreciation Society t-shirt and uh, maybe sit down and listen to some records later. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you and I were the same age when Graceland came out, and I think you know, that would have been like 80, what, 86? 80, I was a junior, yeah, 86. Yeah, yeah me too. And so that line, even when I was 16, when you had that line, uh, as if I'd ever noticed the way she brushed her hair from her forehead, and I thought, that is some writing. Even at 16, I was like, oh, for God's sakes. Yeah, isn't that funny? And you end up being a writer. I mean, that's, yeah. but see, I don't think, that's the funny thing about <clears throat> music and everybody you know, everybody's a critic and, and that's good. You know, I think it's important for us to pull things apart and, and realize what we love and what we don't love and defend them. Um, it's always been my goal that when somebody comes to see a live show, whether it be a solo show or a tonic show, um, is that I just want somebody to walk away feeling something. They don't have to understand what I'm talking about. And they don't have to be completely agree with what I'm saying. We're all I ask is that they connect with it. And if somebody walks away from a show saying, "Man, that you're a great singer," that really moved me. That's like the best compliment in the world. It has nothing to do with what I was saying. Maybe it's just the fact that people took a moment to to be connected, you know. And and that I think that was part of the journey for me doing this record was because. You have to sometimes listen to a work and it's in its full full rundown. Um, I know we're obsessed with singles and that's part of the culture now and that's healthy and that's good. I mean we did it in the fifties and we're doing it again. And <clears throat> I love it. I love pop music. But and I'll, I'll only use this as a reference in the way that, you know, I was listening to the Nicole play record and I, I kinda needle dropped here and there on it. Yeah. And I realized it was it was teaching me the same lesson that I was trying to teach myself that some works just have to be listened to from the top to the bottom and then they make sense. And if you just listen to it in pieces, I mean think about if you read, you know, 
eight pages of War and Peace, you'd be like, this person's a lunatic. <laughs> like, there's no way it would have, you know, made sense. And I'm not comparing my work to that. But what I'm saying is some works, you have to listen to them top to bottom, or it's just, it's just pieces that, that don't make any sense. There has to be that thread. And there's always one song on a record that you're a little, you're not sure if it fits. And um, I know there was one on my record, this one, that I was just like, man, I don't know if this really fits. It's part of the story, but it sounds a little different. And that one didn't make the cut on vinyl because on vinyl you have to, you know, it, it has to be tighter and smaller. I couldn't put, you know, 13, 14 songs on a vinyl record unless I did a double record. And then that becomes indulgent, I think, unless you're Peter Frampton. And I think... Uh, it made me fall in love with vinyl. I mean, I've always loved vinyl, but it just reminded me like, oh, yeah, you have to say it in 43 minutes. That's that's what it is. Like you have to tell the whole story. But to get away, from, get back to what I got so far away from was I just feel like some pieces have to be listened to in, in, in their entirety. And once you do that once, then, you know, then you go back and you find your favorites and songs that speak to you. But, man, there's just some records like that. And Musgraves' record was like that, mm. you know. And the first time I heard that record, I heard one song of I think it was High Horse, somebody played for me. And I know those guys who produced the record, and they're fantastic Nashvillians. And Daniel Tashin, uh, you know, mixed and co-produced one of the tracks on my record. And Daniel was like, you have to listen to it from the top to the bottom. And I was like, okay. So I did, and I was like, holy shit, this is a great record. When you and I were growing up, like if someone said to me, what are your favorite novels? I I think in many ways, The Joshua Tree and Life's Rich Pageant, um, those to me are like novels in the sense that, of course, I needle dropped as a DJ when I was playing mm -hmm. those records. But The Joshua Tree for me, front to back, Life's Rich Pageant, front to back, those are there's a narrative there. And those need to be listened as whole pieces. Yeah, I was living in France. I just graduated high school when I moved to France when that record came out, when Joshua Tree came out. And I remember driving with my buddy and we would drive into the countryside every day where he was working. And, and I got a like kind of a part-time job there to stay there for about three or four months. And that record to me, I, I can probably say single-handedly made me make a hard choice to just be a songwriter and a singer. I saw them at Brendan Byrne Arena in 1987 or 88, I think it was. Wow. Um, and he came out on stage, and of course they were doing stuff like, you know, off of Unforgettable Fire and all the records that I worshipped because I loved Daniel Lynn Wives. You know, I think a game changer for that band as a, as a producer. <clears throat> and he just put his hand up and he just went, shh. And 25,000 people just... It was like a pin drop. I thought that right there is magic. That's that's the power of telling the story, you know. And I, I agree with you. That record absolutely changed me as a as a young musician. Emerson, I wanted to ask you in terms of the writing process when you sit down to write between the hours of seven and one, and you don't come up with anything. Are those? Mm -hmm. How do you handle those moments now? Uh, do you do you recognize that as part of the process? Yeah, I do. <clears throat> because something can start out 
what I think is complete garbage. And then I revisit it two months later by accident um, and think, oh, okay, these pieces can connect. I mean, when I when I wrote If You're Gonna Leave off the cigarettes and gasoline record, uh, I had that that verse, which I didn't think was great, but I had it for two years. And one morning I woke up and I put all, it's like, I mean, granted, something was going on in my life at that time that was about to devastate me, but all the words started to make sense and then the chorus came out. And I think that unless we give, we have to make room for, I don't like the word the muse, but it really is what it is. We have to make room for the muse. So you have to be patient and you have to keep working no matter what, no matter what. I, I knew a young writer who ended up being a very successful writer. And when he couldn't create in the in the day, he would literally just sit down and write out other people's lyrics. <laughs> he would sit with, and just write out, you know, lyrics. And it would inspire him and start connecting dots. And it's not a plagiaristic, at, you know, move. It was just him telling his brain, hey, I'm a word person. Let's wake up. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, you have, in my opinion, written a beautiful album and a beautiful novel at the same time. It's a very novelistic piece of work, and it's just remarkably done. Well, thank you very much, man. I, I appreciate that. I don't. I always like a kind word. I take the harsh ones too, but I, I should be loving the kind ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations, and thank you for a really thoughtful conversation. No, man, I really enjoyed it. Let's do it again sometime. Thanks, buddy. All right, buddy. You know, the moral of that conversation is, you know, do the dishes, <laughs> pitch in, be a contributive member of a relationship. Nice conversation with Emerson Hart. For more information about him, go to emersonhart.com. I like that guy. And for more information about me, please go to alexgreenonline.com or for God's sakes, follow me on Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. I know, I know. So much business, so much stuff to cover at the end of the show. We, in the old days, would say, thank you and good night. Now we're like, follow me on these five different social media places. Uh, go to all these platforms and subscribe to the podcast. You know, like Spotify, uh, Apple Music, iHeartRadio, FM, Stitcher, places like that. Go there, subscribe uh, to our podcast. Anyway, we have to run through all these uh, agenda items at the end of a show to make sure that you're back here next week. <laughs> but I trust you will be because we like each other. Tell your friends about Stereo Embers, the podcast. If you don't have any friends, make some and then tell them about our show. Spread the word that way, the organic way. <laughs> you know, farm to table, farm to table to radio. Okay. All right, let's close the show off with a brand new song from Emerson Hart. This is Lucky One. Enjoy it, and I will see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Life goes up. Life goes down when it's 
sparkles Won't you around It's alright When money's tight Fuck the riches It's all in Sparkles, won't you? Rest?